All right, come on. Mommy would be so mad at me. No, she wouldn't. No, Mama doesn't she listen doesn't to listen. the show, so we're good. Listen to the show. Here we go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Oppenheimer. Sometimes my dad and his friends say really bad words. So if you don't want to listen to bad words, then you should get the hell out of here. Yeah! <laughs> We're using this every week. Hello, Jews and everyone else. This is Unorthodox. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello, we made it from the wilderness to almost the Holy Land. Almost. And senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Happy eighth day of the Omer. <laughs> the Omer is just the days between the Passover big, oh, and Shavuot, right? Fifty days. Fifty days. It's sort of like our Lent a little bit. It is there. kind of like Lent. And you can't it? cut your hair, you can't get married, right? There must be but there's three fi- weeks you can't get married. To count the Omer. <laughs> Um, Our Jew of the Week is filmmaker Fern Perlstein, director of The Last Laugh, which is a documentary about Holocaust humor. It's like she was the guest made for for us. It's like, thank you for making this documentary, so now we can have you on the show. (laughs) And our Gatwa, our Gentile of the Week, is Ashley McKinless, host of Jesuitical, a podcast that's like the Catholic unorthodox, except... They're even younger than we are. But it really is the Catholic Unorthodox. It really is the Catholic. I'd say it's a pretty good, like, theological theory. At first, there was the, the original Jewish podcast, right? Oh, that was my joke <laughs> I was going to make to And her. then someone's like, you know what? We can do the same thing. We can have thing. a new, a little only different. way more popular. Yes, all the things that we don't really like about it. Um, so what's up, Jews? A little Passover recap? I love Passover. I feel terrible after the Seders, though. But like you The s- wine? No, like the matzah, the chopped liver. It's like you just... Feel it's, it's, it's heavy very, for it's you. Heavy, it's yeah. heavy. Yeah. It's heavy for everyone, I think. I don't end up eating so much at the Seder's because I'm leading them. Like I'm not, I'm not going back. How, to how was your forwards. leadership this this year? What's your job approval rating after I, the Seder? I feel like I feel like my leadership was strong. I feel like there was general consensus, at least by which I mean Sid agreed with me that the second night was really strong. I mean, we had wonderful Seder's both nights. Um, was the second, second night, night the one without the family? Is no, no, no there was, was actually strong? more family. Actually, oh. that was the night that my parents and sister joined oh. us. But my sister brought her friend Cheshire. Cheshire. My cousin oh, yeah. Sasha brought her friend Hopewell. Mm-hmm. So we had people at our Seder named Cheshire and Hopewell, which, and they were amazing. And then we had a Zelda, and Zelda was it's amazing. Important. And then we had um, Hannah, who's this new, amazingly wonderful midwife who's moved to the neighborhood. I mean, I don't know if her midwifery skills are good, but she's a great person. The thing about guests is that they're usually awesome. I mean, my family's awesome too, but we had like four or five people who were there who were grateful to have been invited to a Seder. I think a couple, I think Hopewell had never been to one before. And Yeah, they uh, want to bring it. And they bring it. And it was just really, I, it was really wonderful. Because it's what you said last time. It's it's the opposite, basically, of people being like, oh, this is the Seder. We're going to just like go through it. If you have new people, they actually are interested. And they're the, they're almost the ideal participants. P- totally. See, my leadership. Yeah, how was uh, your leadership? My leadership uh, <laughs> style. Uh, I, I would say it was kind of Trumpian. So a lot Sounds of right. a lot of overconfidence at the top, <laughs> not a lot of skill, and then like a whole cabinet of whom, like let's say three or four, are like great, like Nikki Haley types <laughs> that you really want there and trust and love, and then there's sort of like, oh wow, that that person's just like really doing a lot of like their, their own thing. It's a, like a lot of a lot of. Divisiveness. No, I'm kidding. Divisiveness. Divisiveness. Nice, Mark's oh, pun. Yeah. Mark's second pun of 2017. Okay. Everyone drink. Um, can we talk about about Passover lingo? Yes, I'm just so curious because I got a lot of Zissin Pesachs, and what? I was like, okay, and then a lot of like Hag Sameach, which I mean, I prefer a Happy Passover. Just right. Like, just I just want to say, I do you say... live in Krakow and or Petach Tikva? Because <laughs> right. if the answer is yes, but I was those just so curious, like who says what? Terms. 
All right. When I was growing up, it was like happy Passover. And then I discovered in college this Chag Sameach thing. But I still to this day can't remember what's a Chag and what's not. Because the Yontefs aren't like Rosh Hashanah is not a Chag, right? Chags are, there's like five or six. like the happy ones, right? Are the happy ones, right? Because it's like. And then I'm just barely getting why they say in the middle. So for our listeners who don't know, that's like joyous holiday, Chag Sameach, right? But then in the middle of it, they'll say Moadim Lesimcha, which means like it's the middle of something, right? But it does, it has spread. And Sid, I will say, is really bothered. It's like one of her pet peeves are people who don't know a word of Hebrew who have to say Chag Sameach instead of just like, yeah, and it's like there's been a creep of look how, look how OG I am, you know, yeah. in the holiday wishes. I mean, Chag Sameach to me is very like Hamish. <laughs> like it seems, oh, Chag Sameach. Like it depends how you, you know, you hug someone for the Seder, oh, Chag Sameach. But- Although- I agree. What's this in Pesach? Where did it's that come sweet, from? Right, sweet pa- Pesach, which I learned from a PJ Library book, which where they talk about. And they did not uh, pay you to say that. They did not pay me to say that, but they, like the Bubby and the and the Zadie say, have a zis in Pesach. So that's the Yiddish version that your Bubby and Zadie would say. Yeah. Except but, my Bubby and Zadie said, like they called up, they're like, hey, did you have a seder? Yo, right? like yo, like. But so, but so, why are all like the young saying it now? Um, they're culturally appropriating Judaism. <laughs> they're so they're so unJewish that, that they have to culturally I mean, appropriate. Part I think of this, actually this is what it is. Well, part if of if you it, have nothing, you go to silly words like, "Oh, I know, I know the term." Part of it is the state of Israel, right? Like that's when they shifted, and like we have to say Shabbat Shalom because we're teaching hey. the kids Hebrew, and that's I think where that's why it's surprising that Shul and Zis and Pesach have come back because they're old Yiddishism. So that's like right because you know why, Mark? Because of the occupation. Is if that you, why? If you say Hag Sameach, then you support Bibi Netanyahu. So you have to say Yiddish, which is socialist. Is that a real theory? You know, it's, I'm, I'm going with that. You're that, going. that sounds, <laughs> there has to be. So you won't say this in past. There's like a left wing activist movement be, underground. There has to be some dickwad in Brooklyn who's like, I don't feel comfortable using Hebrew because it's the language of the oppressor. So I'm going to go back to Yiddish because it's the language I mean, of the Holocaust. I mean, you should just go back to Aramaic at that point. Sweet. I do have. I Mel do. Gibson claimed that. <laughs> But he takes all the good things. He does take all the good things. Anyway, everyone, uh, we hope you had a Zissin Pesach. And, um, and, chag and you know what you missed if you were Zissin your Pesach is you – if you were really from about Zissin your Pesach is you missed Sean Spicer talking about <laughs> concentration camps or death camps as Holocaust centers. I have never regretted taking – like agreeing to take a week off of this podcast for like, you know – Passover, which seemed legitimate, and it was sort of like, what's the worst that could happen? No one's doing anything. There'll be no big Literally Jew the news. second day of Passover. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. The first. Oh, the first. It was the Tuesday. Seder. It was Sorry, the, the, day second, the, second, the day of the second Seder. It was, it was the first full 24 hours of Passover. Spicy. Spicy. Can really I just say how much I love the locution Holocaust <laughs> Center? Because, of course, the first thing that I think about is like an offshore call center. And it's like, oh, hello, welcome to Holocaust Center. <laughs> it's like, you guys don't sound German. Like, no, no, my name is Dietrich. We're totally German. How can we help you with your mass execution today? It's like, so your idea is they were offshoring the, the murder of Jews somewhere in to Bang- Mumbai. In Bangalore, there's like a bunch of dudes being like, this is a really good job. Because you know the Germans would not do it. Like, that's a, that's a shitty job. The Germans, like, build cars. To me, a Holocaust machines. Center is like... These amazing Holocaust museums that exist around the world, <laughs> and I was like, you know, follow Friday, a bunch of Holocaust centers. To me, like, the Holocaust right. Center is something my parents are on the board of seven. Of. <laughs> yeah. And to me, of course, the Holocaust Center was like a Jewish community center, but you don't have to pay a membership fee, and there are no squash courts, and they're slightly better heated. Why are you assuming that you don't have to pay? Of course, you have to pay. So you have well, to pay for the, for the Holocaust Center. It's ten thousand dollars for the basic membership. <laughs> that does not include the pool. <laughs> you know, it's going to be that. 
What kills me uh, is that a whole host of people who fervently supported a big, big, big deal with an actual Holocaust-denying regime that spends millions and hundreds of millions of dollars killing actual Jews were like, oh, my God, he said Holocaust standards. Could you believe how ignorant this regime is? I, like, I assume you're talking well, about the Iran deal here? You know, guys, if you cared so much about Jews and the Holocaust, maybe go easy uh, on supporting the regime that actually kind this of is the, into the Holocaust. This is the month where you're anti-anti-Trump. Oh, this is Liel's... Wait until you hear my muzzle. You're still anti-Trump, right? You know who's getting my muzzle? This is his, his own. I just want to check. Are you still anti-Trump? For forever, but but you know, now you're anti-anti-Trump. But you're anti-hypocrisy. I'm anti-everything. Anti-everything. I'm just anti. Okay, so um, bringing the news up to date. Uh, this from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency: the Orthodox Jewish mayoral candidate in some town in England, whose name is Schneer Odza. Uh, uh, say it again. It's Schneer. Udza. It's like uh, Shmura Matzah, but like the next level. That's is. exactly right. <laughs> anyway, he's weirdly <laughs> enough a candidate for UKIP, for the right-wing populist party, the UK Independence Party. On the eve of Pesach, he found a Hebrew language New Testament, which had been produced by some sort of Jews for Jesus or just Jesus's for Jesus group. And he, he in found- In his synagogue. In his synagogue, he found this New Testament and he took it out on the street and set it on fire and took a picture and tweeted it, writing under the picture, grateful to whoever put a missionary Bible amongst our synagogue's books, was wondering what I'd burn my chametz with. <laughs> so salty. Dang, I gotta Schneer. tell you, Schneer, I, I'm kind of feeling that, brother. Not that I love burning books, but like, that's funny. And every time Jews misbehave in like a really colossal way, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, these are my people. It's kind of like file under like, not great for the Jews in the UK, right. like who are already like, you know. Dealing with some some stuff for your not yeah, that they're, they're not that he represents all Jews, but kind of now he does, right? Yeah, but you know what? I would rather that the labor fuckers who are like Mamlan Jews are like, you know what? Know that there are people like Schneer out there who would burn Schneer, shit up. Right? Schneer will cut you. Yeah. <laughs> you want you want to fuck with the Jews? There's a Schneer motherfucking Odze out there who has a lighter and a license to use it. Oh my. Yeah. Um. And then of course I don't even know what to say about this. There were flyers in the streets of Brooklyn. I'm just titling that just so we can get the Smith song the in there. Smith song ever. Um, that some guy like drove through Borough Park or Williamsburg or whatever, like threw flyers with anti-Semitic things. He was on, on a them. motorcycle. He was on a motorcycle. He was like the the motor the anti-Semitic bandit of Dumbo. <laughs> but it's like a reverse bandit. Anyway, he he's a, things. He's a coward, and if they ever catch him, they're going to fly so him. What over was to in the, the flyers? Were really gross. What, they like they had a lot of Holocaust denial. They had like swastikas. They were and they had like kind of like cartoons. About the Holocaust myth and like how long can Jews control the everything? Or and then it's like not long. Answer not long and just like gross drawings. Well, well, uh, Jewish Voices for Peace. Congratulations on your latest campaign in Brooklyn. <laughs> I just feel like we talk about you know we're like okay the JCC wasn't really what we thought it was, but but like for all the like fear that was sort of assuaged when we found out the JCC bombing suspect wasn't actually going to do anything, you're like there's still this like nasty undercurrent. Of anti-Semitism. I think I've gone into the alarmist party, by the Look way. Look at that. It just took well, one, two passive to conversations. You're in the alarmist party. Liel's in the anti-anti-Trump party. Well, no, I'm, 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 I'm with her in the alarmist. Too. Okay. It's actually hashtag I'm with her. I'm, I'm with her. Um, can I talk about an upcoming live show? Yes. Oh, yeah. I would like to do the same thing. The live show is moi. 
no, it's not really me, but the the storytelling and narrative uh, journalism conference that I've helped put together at Yale for the past two years is happening again, June 11th through 14th. It's called Thread. Uh, you can find out more at thread.yale.edu. Uh, the faculty is unbelievable. It's Catherine Burns from The Moth. It's Glenn Washington who, who from Snap. Amazing. Who's amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. It's Glenn amazing. Washington from Snap Judgment. It's Sarah Stillman from The New Yorker. It's Linda Gradstein from uh, formerly the Jerusalem Bureau Chief of NPR. Um, it's me. It's um, Nicole Hannah-Jones from The Times Magazine and This American Life. It's just a great – oh, Steve Brodner, the cartoonist. Actually, he does this amazing thing. He teaches everyone how to cartoon in like three minutes. Anyway, um, if you want to know more, go to thread.yale.edu and um, – yeah, we'd love to see you. But that's all the way in the summer. But that's in June. Now, do you have something now, for us soon? What, our listeners, what you got? Our listeners do not have that kind of attention span, right? Okay. Yeah, I've already uh, forgotten. This coming Monday. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this Monday. April 24th, uh, right? 24th uh, at 6.30 p.m. at Yeshiva University Museum, which is at the Center for Jewish History on, I believe, 15th Street. I think 16th. Um, 16th Street. Yours truly uh, will be leading a gallery walk and talk about Jerusalem. And uh, my family's history. But you've never been there. The city to it. which you've probably been Well, you been know, I watched twice. some YouTube's video, videos. <laughs> I, I read Mark Twain. He was there some years back. Uh, and it was. this is going to be about my, my anti-Zionist great-grandfather who was a famous rabbi who felt you could only be a true anti-Zionist if you lived in Jerusalem. Lordy. That is like deep. Lordy. That is, so, that is you. That is anti-anti-anti. That is anti-anti-anti. Um, <clears throat> you know what we're pro, pro, pro is our subscribers to our newsletter. Um, you can get our newsletter by writing to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or just going on our website and clicking our newslettery button. This week, we'd like to welcome the new subscribers. They constitute the law firm of Michaela Brown, Michelle Skalrut, and Yonadav Tapuchi. It's pronounced Tapuchi. Who is Yonadav Tapuchi? Like Liel seems to know him. Liel, were you in the IDF with Yonadav Tapuchi? That's such a good and name. And what was Yonadav. he known as then? Yonadav Tapuchi was not in the IDF. Yonadav Tapuchi was born John Smith in a small town <laughs> in Wisconsin before he saw the light. He moved to the West Bank. He started his own settlement called Tapuach, <laughs> and he changed his name to Yonadav Tapuchi. He's a famous settler rabbi uh, leader right now. What is Yonadav? It, like, it's not Yonatan. No. What is it? What is it's it? It's the next step. It's what you call Nadav when is you see a, him passing is that, on the other side of the street. Yo, Mark, that was a funny joke. You guys have learned me in this time. I'm getting. <laughs> but what is Yonadav? Is that a common name in Israel? No, it is not. I like it a lot. Um. <clears throat> So yeah, get the newsletter. Also, recommend us to a friend. If every one of you brought in one new listener, the increased- Mashiach would come. It would be as if you brought in the full (laughs) universe of subscribers. What I was going to say, a little more down to earth and homely, was that our our increased ad revenue would allow me to send my children to Jewish summer camp, thus keeping them within the fold, thus thwarting Hitler. Wow. So how about that? Straight straight to Hitler in two steps. Yeah. What's, What's the date this Friday? 420? It is 420. Why is that a Hitler thing? It's that's his, his birthday. birthday. Wait, 420. What kind of a Jew are you? 420 is so pot day you. and Hitler's birthday? Yeah. Uh, obviously. I didn't know. It's the yin and the yang. Oh, my God. So I'm reading the new uh, Hitler biography. You've been reading it for a while. Yeah, what's taking so long? It's a thousand pages. <laughs> How does it end? That dude, I don't know. I'm really surprised. I think he's going back to being an artist. There are a lot of good signs there. But the thing that I love the most is that there is literally a chapter in this biography, the title of which... Not making this up is Hitler 
and the Ladies, <laughs> which is about Hitler's romantic love life. But I'm thinking this is the worst season of The Bachelor ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, you all get a rose except for you, Vera Cohen. Yeah, you are not getting the rose. Uh, there will be a train to escort you. <laughs> I'm surprised it hasn't been done. I have no idea what's in his head. It would suck if I went home on the first night just because he didn't really get a chance to get to know me. Our Jewish guest is filmmaker Fern Perlstein, whose new documentary is The Last Laugh, which explores the thorny question of can we joke about the Holocaust and who, if anyone, is allowed to tell those jokes. Welcome, Fern. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi. So why take on this topic? Yeah, good question. <laughs> really good question. Um, boy, it's it dates pretty far back, actually. In 1990, a very good friend of mine and I went to what was then the brand new Holocaust Memorial in Miami Beach. And we met a survivor who was giving us a tour. And after the tour was up, we we had just read Art Spiegelman's Mouse and had been so taken by it. And we started talking to her about it, and she was really upset. She hadn't read it, but her response was, there's nothing funny about the Holocaust. You can't, you know, make humor out of it. And, you know, we had a very thoughtful conversation saying we didn't think that that's, you know, that he, that it was necessarily humor. It was a comic form. And, you know, it was a very, you know, thought, like I said, thoughtful conversation. But we sort of went off in our own direction. I went off to film school. And my friend went off to get his PhD. And he, he, he was thinking about this issue, like, can you make jokes? Did it exist? And he did this 25-page paper called The Last Laugh, Humor in the Holocaust. And it it examined this issue, like, within the camps, within the ghettos. And he found, you know, the, these collections of jokes and stuff. And it was a very academic paper. And I saw him again in 1993. He handed it to me and he said, make this into a film. So that's, that's and, and the genesis. And here we are. And here we are. And it only took me until 2011 to raise the money for this difficult what project the, to fund. Uh, here's, here's, so here's my question. You know, uh, this is a very Hollywood question. What's, <laughs> what's the fundraising pitch like? Okay, so get this, Holocaust, funny. Yeah, no, it, 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 it wasn't, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. I couldn't get grants to support me. In the end, it was one person. It was just because the subject is so taboo still? Yes. It, it was at the time? It was at the time. Because, you know, I, I, so that was 1993, but it wasn't really until 1998, you know, I had met my, my, he became my husband. He he hired me to shoot his film. I was a cinematographer. And um, we immediately, within three days, were like planning our life together, turning that paper into a proposal. <laughs> <laughs> but we could not get anybody. Ever, people were interested. They were fascinated. Producers, sometimes, you know, if we came across, you know, a comedian or anybody with money, they'd be like, great idea. Let me know if somebody else says yes. Right. But why did it take so long? Because you would think, you know, the producers was a big hit on Broadway. That kind yeah. of skirts the issue a little bit. It's not like there has been absolutely no... Exactly. Exactly. Because my, uh, unlike the pa- the original paper, my film really was post-war humor. So when I told people what the film was about, they'd blanch. But the fact is, a lot of these examples in the film, they've seen. Uh, Everybody has their distinctions, right? I mean, Mel Brooks, 
who we think of as breaking taboos his entire career, will make fun of the Nazis, but he absolutely draws a line and will not make jokes about the victims or the camps or whatever. Then there are, like, Gilbert Gottfried is like, this is an outtake, but he's like, he couldn't understand how comedians had this distinction. She's like, yeah, because the Nazis had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm with St. Gilbert on this one. What, you think all jokes are okay? If it's a funny joke, it's a funny joke. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's well, like... Oh, sorry. Sorry, no, you go. No, I was just going to say, that that is the one thing that everybody agrees on in the film. It's the one point that it has to be funny. But I also think there's intention has to be good, too. So, so basically, my grandparents met in the displaced persons camp at Bergen-Belsen. They were in the theater troupe. That, yes. And, and that's a part of the film. And the th- these theater troops during and especially after the war, what they did was make fun of the Nazis. And so it's like, to me, to me, the, there's something very, very, very Jewish and very much at the core of Jewish resistance and survival th- for millennia that is gallows humor. Like, to me, that is how I imagine my grandparents got through even being in the displaced persons camp, which was not a fun place to be. And so my, you know, I don't know, for me, that's, there's something so important about that. And so actually empowering about that to say that like, right after the Holocaust, you could, if if, they, if you were in those camps, you could find something, if not humorous about it, but you could sort of take back your agency. Right. Great, great stand-up comedy. Do you ever notice typhus? What's up with that? <laughs> but I think that's how I imagine, if I imagine in those camps, like you had to, you had to, create a world for yourself that that was entertaining that sort of sur- helped you survive yes. so to me it's so funny to say like and maybe i'm saying this and i can say this as the grandchild of survivors like maybe that's i don't know well you know so renee firestone is the the survivor in the film who's turning 93 on april 13th um she she's become sort of like a grandmother to me and we have had really incredible conversations of exactly about what you're saying you know, could there have been humor in Auschwitz, for instance? Um, what Renee and I talk about a lot is, you know, people were living their daily lives. A lot of them came from, you know, the ghetto, came from total hatred and and being spit upon. And, you know, like this was another day. You know, it wasn't necessarily the day they knew they were going to their death. And if it, laughter is an instinct – and 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 Renee literally said, you know, if something's funny, you laugh. Even if you were in the camp, if something was funny, you would laugh. I mean, yeah, it's hard to being. imagine that, but it happened. She she's, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the film because she's almost the barometer. Like she's the survivor there exactly. that you see, and so she actually tells what I think is this. It's not hilarious, but she tells this joke about Mengele. Yeah. Basically telling her, right. you if should, you survive you this, get your tonsils out. Right. And she's like, and I survived and I got my tonsils out. And, and she's laughing. And Actually, like, she never did get her oh, she tonsils did. out. Nope. So she's Probably still not as a screw you to yeah. him. And, I'm, and it's like, you're literally laughing about something that Mengele told you in a life or death <laughs> yeah. moment. And then, of course, there's a scene of her watching. It's her and her daughter. And her daughter's playing her all these clips of Sarah Silverman making jokes and all these comedians. And she's like, not funny. Not funny. So it's like, it's very fascinating to watch her. Right. But because that's the whole thing, it's not a black and white issue, you know. It's and 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 what she was saying is basically, I'm not offended. It's just not funny. When Lisa Lampanelli told her joke, she was offended. You know, there because was she a wasn't difference. Jewish? No, I think it. The, well, it crossed a line. Was it because she wasn't Jewish? Was it a little bit of a? I don't know. Was there anything while making the film, any any joke or anything that you've heard that made you feel uncomfortable? 
Um, well, let me answer that by telling you about my line. You know, like every, you know, I've noticed, you know, everybody has a line. We, we see it in the film with Mel Brooks. We see, you know, Susie Essman, her line is, you know, jokes about rape and child molestation. I mean, Gilbert Gottfried, no line, but he's Bless his own. <laughs> um, but, you know, my line were those jokes that you that you heard like maybe on a playground or something, those really awful, awful jokes, like what's the difference between a pizza and a Jew? You know those jokes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That's my childhood, right? Yeah. There. Wait, exactly. what's the answer? Uh, that the pizza does not scream in the oven. Oh. You know that. You know, so so there's, that's punching down. So that's, Is that what they call that? Yes. And not only that, but there It's a very are, popular joke growing that's up That's one of the ones I can tell. I mean, they are really awful, awful jokes. And I just felt like... That doesn't make the point of the film. Although we did have a scene <laughs> where uh, Renee and Claire, just like they are, R Claire had found this website with all these jokes. It was just like one really nasty site, you know, that had them all in discussion groups after. And they're reading them. And I can't really see this, the, 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 the screen. I just see the back of their heads. I'm trying to. So they're, they're reading the jokes and one's nastier than the next and then all of a sudden the two of them bust out laughing when they get to the bottom <laughs> and renee reads it and it's why did hitler really commit suicide he got the gas bill but when you hear a, a, an auschwitz survivor laughing at that joke it's <laughs> it's you know then it becomes funny but i still you know that that would have saved the scene because she delivered the joke but um i i just thought that you know, I was trying to make the point that there are all these different factors. There's context. Who's your audience? Who can tell the joke? You know, um, and that just didn't like fall into the cat. That just fell in the mean spirited category for me. But um, I also wanted to, you know, like by having them watch those jokes on YouTube, I, I wanted to show that, you know, you could be laughing at that Sarah Silverman joke and then you widen out and you see Renee look, at, you know, watching that joke, suddenly it it doesn't feel that good. And when I would show Rough Cut's early days, I'd have friends say, you, you take her out saying it's not funny. And I'd say, why? And they'd say, well, they're ruining it's like they're 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 making she's making me feel bad. Well, you know, she's taking away my point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that just made me stronger. I'm like, I'm holding on to that. But you know, I so Bob, my husband and I, we went to see like 15 years ago, we went to see Sarah Silverman do that show, Jesus is Magic, before they filmed it and everything. And, you know, we were in a dark theater on Bleecker Street, a lot of young people, everybody laughing. You know, you did nobody's watching us, you know, laughing. And it was very funny. And then the same jokes when I had her, and I didn't know this was going to happen, but when I watched, when I'm filming her, because I'm holding the camera, you know, and and watching those jokes, suddenly I felt sick to my stomach, and that's the 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 roller coaster I wanted the audience to feel. Well, thank you so much. Uh, where can our listeners see your film? On April twenty fourth, it will be on uh, PBS's Independent Lens. Oh wow! So our listeners can tune in just in time for Holocaust Remembrance Day. Yes, exactly, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Thank you so much, Vern. Thank you. Make them laugh. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So we've got a special treat today. We've got Noam Osband in the studio with us. He is our resident ukulele genius and friend. Um, welcome, our, our, Noam. Our UG, our rug. Resident ukulele. Yeah, he's our rug. So good to be here. So good to be here. Um, it's going to be an educational song. Yeah. Uh, but before we get into the education, what did you, uh, how was your Seder? What was like the, the big thing which you had at your Seder? What was like the main dish? Like what was the, the main course? Oh, like, like seven a, kinds of meat. Yeah, we did like a, a skirt steak my cousin grilled. Cool. It was really good. Was there chicken as well? But or? Yeah, there was always chicken. But I never actually go for the chicken because there's like so many more exciting types of meat. That's right. Cool. And uh, we do a vegetarian Seder. So really? Yeah. So there's a flourless chocolate cake. There's vegetarian. There's matzo lasagna. There's a um, there's eggplant. Tofurky. Okay. No, we don't, we, don't, we don't do fake meats because they're terrible. So by the end of the song, two of you should feel bad about yourself, and one of you is going to feel good about yourself. Is it Mark? He's it's pretty much how life Mark goes. Because um, he's a vegetarian. So uh, we're coming up on a birthday. We're coming up on a birthday. As everybody knows, one of the great coincidences of life is 420 is every great stoner's favorite day. Also, Hitler's birthday. Sean Spicer said about Hitler that he didn't gas his own people, right? And that's, right. that's crazy. What a horrible thing to say. As if the Jews are not constructed as part of German identity. Horrible. However, I think it's important in this day and age that we do try to see the good in everybody, right? I mean, like, the world has gone to a crazy place, and the only way in which we can really be good is if we recognize everybody has a little bit of good to them. For sure. Hitler didn't not gas his people. He gassed his people. But there is something Hitler did not do. Hitler the vegetarian committed acts of genocide. But guess where you never find him? Eating greasy chicken fried. Oh, Hitler the vegetarian did a lot of bad things. But eating hamburgers was not one of his sins. Oh, he believed in the master race, but never put a chicken nugget on his plate. Crimes against humanity, but at least he never ate a BLT. True Hitler facts, true Hitler facts. He would uh, sit at the table during mealtimes and say to everybody else who was eating meat, he would say to the leading Nazi officials and the SS men how disgusting it was that they were eating meat. That if they had ever seen a slaughterhouse and the cruelty that goes on in there, they would never eat meat. Unlike Leo and Stephanie. Hitler the vegetarian opposed animal cruelty. In that sense, you might say we all share Hitler's ideology. Oh, Hitler the vegetarian trying to live a good life too. If you oppose factory farming... There's a little bit of Hitler in you. Oh, he believed in the master race, but never put a Polish sausage on his plate. Crimes against humanity, but 
But at least he never ate a manatee. Another Hitler fact. He would apparently cover his eyes during movies when there were scenes of animal cruelty. And he would have somebody tell him when the scene was over so that he could watch it again. That's actually totally true. Hitler the vegetarian couldn't pull the vegan act. Everybody knows Adolf loved omelets, a well-known historical fact. But he only killed one species when he could have been a multi-species killer. Cause if you eat beef and chicken, then you're twice a species killer than Hitler. Because he believed in the master race, but never put a chicken nugget on his plate. Crimes against humanity, but at least he never ate at KFC. Hitler the vegetarian. Yeah! I have to say that song makes me really sad. So, Noam, how do we, like, find out where we can see you, where we can watch you, where we can hear you? So when your name is Noam Osband, it's pretty easy to get www.noamosband.com. Um, and if you go there, you can see I'm going to be playing some shows um, in New York at the end of April and beginning of May. And I'll be doing some, some of these songs and some new songs as well. Go, Daddy. Our Gentile of the Week is Ashley McKinless. She is an associate editor at America Magazine, the Jesuit Review of Faith and Culture, and she is co-host of the podcast Jesuitical, which is the Catholic Unorthodox. It, yes, it basically is. Welcome. <laughs> We're happy to have you. Let's talk about the pronunciation of Jesuitical. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay, because I heard you say it on your podcast, and then I said, say that the You're same way so on our podcast, because I was going to say Jesuitical. Jesuitical. And you would have shown yourself to be such a Jew. I know. It's like, <laughs> was it obvious already? The Catholics were like, she's such a Jew. <laughs> no, but great to be here. Uh, I, it really is that we were inspired by unorthodox. So, oh, and here's a great moment to say, everyone, everyone listening to this podcast right now, yeah, take a moment, subscribe. pause, subscribe to Jesuitical. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, like how many? You guys are in the thousands already. Yes, we yeah. want to. Like quadruple you. We want to, we can, we can double that. That would be awesome. So when did the podcast start? It started on Ash Wednesday. So, uh, 40 days and some change ago. Um, so we started at the beginning of the season of Lent. Um, and which kind of threw us off. The original inspiration from the show came from like bar conversations with my colleagues. We would be in Cassidy's, our local Irish pub, and be talking about like Planned Parenthood and abortion or like the latest pig bull encyclical and just like look as around and be like, beers. Yeah. as good narcissists, we're like, we should publish this. <laughs> so the first one was this Ash is Wednesday. interesting to everyone. <laughs> so you couldn't drink. Yeah. So the, uh, the original idea was a smart Catholic take on faith culture and the news often over drinks and then we started on ash wednesday and wait you can't of, drink on ash wednesday no you're supposed to, this is the one day of the year where we actually fast like i know catholics generally get the rap for like <laughs> fake fasting um yeah. wait so ash wednesday you don't really catholics yeah, don't fast, eat on ash wednesday but your fasting is morning to sundown right <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a muslim fast this i mean really, come on no, it's it's worse than that it's um, is it a juice fast you, like the mega church preacher i was <laughs> is it a juice you can fast? have you can have one meal and two snacks that don't add up to a full meal. Okay, that doesn't that's, sound like fasting. That's in, I mean, that's guys. in the catechism. I know. Like yeah. the catechism I can buy at Barnes and Noble. That's that's like 
Number and two, B. By the way, sub- I'm sorry. Do you see how much like of a smarter, more modular <laughs> it religion? It makes so this much is? more sense. And no wonder you guys have so many more people. <laughs> also, because they don't tell you how big a meal is. Like for you, if for yeah, you that day right. a meal like, is like I'll, for me, cheeseburgers. <laughs> that's like a brisket. That's like a five be, pound yeah. brisket. Then that's your snacks snack. can each be like one pound briskets. Yeah. No. And it, uh, we looked at looked it up this weekend because my mom was like, "Do I have to fast?" Because she's sixty three now, and apparently it ends at age. 59. If you're After over age 50 or under you 30, are, you don't I have don't to know if that's like ex- depressing for people over 59 or oh, like. No. My mom was very happy to eat chocolate. It's like when you join AARP, you get like the no fast that's Catholic card. Yeah. <laughs> so in the first episode of the podcast, I loved it because you guys said in your office, they ought, that you can get like the ashes Fresh mm-hmm. Wednesday in the conference room, yeah, and that, <laughs> and that every week there's a Wednesday mass, and no one knows who. It's like you you don't have to go; you can go, but on Ash Wednesday you kind of have to do yeah, the Ash. And it, I was thinking evidence. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of Tablet. I'm, I'm assuming America Magazine is like the Catholic analog yeah. to Tablet. That's how I picture it yep. in my head. And I'm just like the idea that we would go into besides like food items, which are always in the conference room, like Jewish food items. I can't think of like an analog if for the Jews. Tefillin, right. it's like we're laying yeah. in today. They have mass. We have locks. That's yeah. the difference. <laughs> so how many, right like there. how many people in the office go to a mass on on Wednesday in the conference room? A given Wednesday, like five or six out of out of thirty. And and are they kind of like? Is it like the same five? Yeah. 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 And it used to be me, and then I started doing Jesuitical on Wednesdays. <laughs> I don't like, got time for mass. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. speaking of American Magazine. Yes. Which we have on the table right here. <laughs> Why do we have it on the table, Leo? We have it on the table, as you could see uh, by the uh, bottom left-hand corner, uh, because this year, Leah Leibowitz is a subscriber to America Magazine. <laughs> now, here's what I want to know. First of all, am I the only Leibowitz who subscribes to America you Magazine? You are the only living Leibowitz. I went through the records, the only and there was four Leibowitz. Only one of them was active, and it was you. <laughs> It's a what? nice euphemism for other alive. <laughs> That's what I, I assume active. the other ones have... Who are the other three Leibovi? Converts. Who this? They're converts. They were hidden in the Holocaust. Now, now I'm Raised serious, by now. nuns in the French mountains, in the Pyrenees. And <laughs> who are your subscribers? Who, who, who reads America Mags? And if I can actually back up, and yeah. it, the subhead of America is the Jesuit Review of Faith and Culture. Can you explain to our listeners who might not understand what that means? Jesuit? Jesuit? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I feel completely unqualified to give the Jesuit history. The same but, for us. So. No, you're so, just representing you know, yeah. the entire... It'll be Go fun. ahead. Um, yeah. So within the Catholic Church, there are different um, religious orders. There are like different teams within the church. So you got your Jesuits, your Franciscans, your Dominicans. Um, and these are orders of religious people who take vows of poverty and obedience and chastity um, and then have different um, missions. So the Jesuits were founded in the 16th century by St. Ignatius. Um, he was a Spaniard. Uh, he was kind of like a young strapping princeling who got... Uh, he was a Nego Montoya. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, basically. basically. Okay, got it. <laughs> and he got you killed my holy father. <laughs> Prepare to, to be converted <laughs> at the sword. Right. Yeah, so he got hit by a cannonball. His like nightly dreams went out the window. And while he was convalescing, he read a book of like the saints and became a uh, devout Catholic. He was and hit by a cannonball. Yeah, Literally hit by a cannonball. Like blew off. His Doesn't leg. happen anymore. Yeah. 
No. <laughs> so there's this thing in like Jesuit spirituality called like the cannonball moment, like where something happens in your life and it just like knocks you off your horse metaphorically or literally um, and kind of turns you. That's amazing. That do is... you ever say like before you do a cannonball in the pool? That... Is that a joke at Jesuit <laughs> high school? I'm sure I, I'm public school all the way, um, but I'm, I have a feeling it's a thing there. So, and so just to be clear, so the, and the orders are what we often many orders have priests and monks some have mm-hmm. priest monks and none so like yeah. the jesuits just they're have the, they only have men priests right yeah and they're all priests there, right? no there are there, there are, are monks. priests and brothers. brothers right so so the brothers they they can't say the full mass um but they have their own place within the order yeah so the jesuits founded back then have a long and storied history um of being the smart ones yeah being the smarty pants founding, and that's where uh, so jesuitical comes from it was a derogatory term it was um so Jesuits were often in, in places of power, seen as elite, and um, would make arguments that some would say were uh, sophisticated but hollow. And so Jesuitical means like equivocating or uh, dissembling. And uh, so with the podcast, we kind of wanted to claim Jesuitical in a good way. Wow. Um, You're reclaiming. Yeah. So, so. The, so the people who read America are Jesuits or do regular Catholics. Yeah, or Jews. Jews. And Jew. <laughs> yeah, no, our, our, our audience is mostly um, highly educated, uh, civically involved uh, Catholics. So, and <laughs> they trend older, but we're trying to bring that down. Which is basically all of the things like... <laughs> that I sort of wish I could be, <laughs> but I'm not, clearly, and will never be. Well, that's something I was sort of very curious about, because the Jewish communal system, and you know, the synagogues, but also these like uh, more—I don't know what you would call—like like, like uh, federations and things like that—are obsessed with the millennials. Mm-hmm. And like, how do we keep them? How do we engage them? How do we speak their language? How do we get them to click on things and like things? Is that yeah. is there sort of like a similar thing going on in the Catholic community? Yes, that is why we founded a podcast. That's why when three twenty somethings come in and said, "Give us money to a podcast," the old people are like, "Yeah, exactly. see." But that's exactly the difference between, if I may. Uh, our sister religion and us because for us there would be like 17 committees and 23 different denominations and not a shekel would freaking be produced with mm-hmm. the actual you know Jezza be like this is a very good idea we're accustomed to actually thinking and moving towards targets here's money go do that and three months later you will have is that how it went 70, I think you're being a little generous to like the Catholic Church in general I think I cannot tell you how strongly <laughs> I believe in the Catholic Church me too um, it's, it's, but... it will be the, the last bastion of I, I said this to Sorba Mari, who wrote your cover story last month when, mm-hmm. when he was here, um, the, I believe the Catholic Church is the last bastion for Western civilization. Cool. Liel's about eight years out from becoming a Catholic. <laughs> so part of the reason we wanted to start Jesuitical is when you are in your 20s and you're not married, you're kind of in like ecclesial no man's land. Like you're not getting your kids baptized. You're not getting married. You're just kind of unchurched unless you make a very concerted effort to stay um, in a community. Uh, and I think that's it's hard for a lot of 20-year-olds, um, especially ones who maybe like went to a Catholic school and then graduate and find themselves surrounded in a sea of secular people. Um, so we, we wanted to be a virtual community for people like that. So I, I want to pick up on, 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 on Stephanie's question and, and mm-hmm. on your okay, answer. But you're so- not a millennial. <laughs> How dare you? This question comes from a non-millennial. You're practically old enough that you don't have to fast with yeah, one meal and two small meals on, on Ash Wednesday. I'm going to be starving that day. 
for those three you hours. Get a full meal, you get a You drink. You can do whatever you want. What's life like uh, for for a for for a young believer uh, in a city like New York? I have kind of lived in a bubble, I would say. So I don't know if I can speak to the wider um, situation. I I live with three Catholics. I work at a Catholic magazine. I have a great Catholic church. Um, so I've kind of like moved just along those stops on the F train for my four years in You have your safe spaces. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I would say it would be hard. Like the, the times where I have gone to a birthday party at like a like nice New York club, I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is how the other side lives. Um, but I don't know. I think that also engenders a solidarity uh, within uh, w- with other believers that might not exist otherwise like you you really have to be intentional about your so, faith one one thing that kind of mm-hmm. falls in this listening to you and, and reading america I, I often feel there's like this inherent tension and maybe i'm completely imagining this but <laughs> but between exactly what you're saying now right on the one hand you you guys are are are, are of the culture uh of of this uh millennium of this mm-hmm. era right uh and 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 you have a very specific kind of political cultural approach that is that is very um you know accommodating and and uh, and embracing mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand you you are people of faith who, who take their faith very very seriously and I, i'm wondering how how you live out that conflict because there is sometimes especially i think in kind of like how would i call it giddily secular circles right yeah. uh this notion of like ah, everything that's traditional we're just reading out a letter from um from from one of our listeners like everything that's traditional is just you know, dumb. It needs to be dispensed with, and it needs to be some sort of, you know, pleasure and trans- disruption and transgression. Like, do you ever find yourself being like, "Wow, I'm in a no man's land here"? Yes, and my response to that is to, um, I think we gain believers by attraction more than instruction or condemning. So, my approach has always been to be like, "I'm going to be joyful and." be very open about the reason for my joy is my Catholic faith, um, among other things, and just have that witness in this culture um, and hope that someone down the line will be like, oh, why is she always laughing and happy? <laughs> like, there must be something going on there. Um, so that's kind she of She must not approach. be Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's very that's very uh, breast liver, right? That's their thing. Is like we have there's a Hasidic sect where their thing is like you are, you are commanded to be joyful all the time. Like yeah. you you God gave you this. They life. invented the rave. Yeah, you just <laughs> basically did. be joyful. Yeah, and, and um, I the, do the morning say rave. A difference between like joyful and happiness. Like it 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 does have to be much more deeply rooted than just like feeling happy because of course I don't always feel happy but I always try to bring joy to any situation I'm in as a way of you know bringing Christ's love into that situation and do you do you ever feel working at the Catholic magazine hosting Jesuitical the Catholic podcast <laughs> do you ever feel um a little bit like people look at me like the, the religious one and and I mean, you're religious, so mm-hmm. you've probably f- and you went to public school. So are you just used to that by now? Yeah, I've actually been pleasantly surprised by like, I don't know, I'll post things on my Facebook about Pope Francis or my podcast and like people will come out of the woodwork from my high school and just be like, oh, this is really great. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I just, it makes me think that there is this longing that is is out there and you just need to meet people where they're at and present the faith in an accessible way um, and 
we we might have more luck than others think. Than the Jews. Um, so so one, before we let you go, one of the privileges that Gentiles of the Week get is to ask us questions. Okay. Um, do you have any questions for this internationally certified panel of Jewish experts? I do. I'm wondering how Jewish people learn about Christianity, like either when they're younger or in their college years. Um because I feel like for Christians, there's this inherent interest in Judaism because it's where As Sean from. Spicer demonstrates. <laughs> yeah. For some Christians, there's an inherent interest in Judaism because, you know, Jesus was a Jew. And so if you want to understand Jesus and Christianity, you kind of have to study Judaism. Um, is there that same interest in so Christianity? So I think the three of us are going to have very different answers yeah, to this. Yeah, especially coming so I'll from tell Israel. You, I will tell yeah. you my answer to that. I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. where the Little League uh, baseball teams were organized by parish. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it was very, very Irish Catholic. And um, I learned about it from... I don't know what my fam- parents told me. I mean, it was that other thing. It, you know, I remember on Ash Wednesday getting on the school bus and looking down at all the rows of children with ashes on their forehead. And I remember on Wednesday, the bus would drop. You could There was a special stop they'd make for CCD, for ca- catechism, right? Like you could go home or the, you could get dropped off at your church, the public school bus. So I just knew it was this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea. Like there was no instruction. I mean, I, I absorbed it from the culture. It was like. By a Yeah, there's Christmas carols. So my kids. Because that's what I'm curious about, like how Jewish children are My kids, I try to explain to them the story. I mean, they know because they see the Christmas trees and they see, so they know what it is. And I try to teach them a little bit about the theology. And I say, they think that, you know, we're still waiting for the Messiah. They think the Messiah has come and his name was Jesus and he was resurrected. And, you know, as I've joked on this show, like my kids find the resurrection, my my kids find the resurrection to be a an unlikely story. Like it's not one that intuitively makes any sense to them, but they see say that parting of the Red Sea. Yeah. That, the burning bush totally oh, yeah. <laughs> Can we do something? Can we bring yeah. Rebecca in and actually ask her that question? Sure. My I daughter's here today. To I know what she knows. Rebecca? Yes. Go into the source. You want to be on the show? <laughs> you're, you're, okay. What kind of liberal father are you? Rebecca, you're on the show. <laughs> Sit down. Say, uh, state your name. Rebecca Oppenheimer. Okay. Fifth grade. Who's your father? Who's your father? Who's your daddy? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer. Okay. Uh, okay. Stay on mic. Will you stay on mic? Okay. So Ashley wanted to know. There you sit down. So Ashley wanted to know what Jewish parents teach. Seriously, what Jewish parents teach their kids about Christianity. And Liel thought we could ask you what, what you know about Christianity. So, I mean, and, and this is not to embarrass you. Maybe you know nothing, which most people don't. So, <laughs> yeah. Talking to the green thing. Okay. So... I know a lot more from my friends, I think, than my parents, just because, I don't know, sometimes my friends, they'll be talking about, I don't know, Christmas or whatever it is, or like my friend Catherine keeps Lent and she'll say what she'll be talking about. She'll complain about not having sweets. Yeah. (laughs) So who's Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? He is, well, he was Jewish. I know that. That's I don't really know how I know that. I just know that. And he... That's more than most Christians know. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He... He lived in Israel, right? Yeah. Okay. So, and the Christians, like, kind of worship him because he... And then he... I'm not really sure what he did, but he was hung on the cross. And then they thought that he was, like, resurrected. And he went... And he was like God's son, and then he went up and, like, sat by God or whatever. And that story seems weird to you. You don't believe he was resurrected? No. No. 
I have to say, you know a lot about yeah, that story. No, you got, you oh, hit thank all the you. major points. Do you believe the Jewish stories? Do you believe the Red Sea, the burning bush, all the stuff we talked about in mm-hmm. Passover? Not really. Like, I don't believe that, like, the sea, like, actually parted because Moses raised his staff and God parted the sea. But I think it could be ways to, like, tell us things or it's like a moral of the story or whatever is more important than, like, I don't think that God was actually the one that made mana fall from the sky. Huh. I think you should lead the Seder next year. Yeah. I think yeah. you should host yeah. Unorthodox. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> all right, should we wrap up? Thank you, Rebecca. Wait, but can I what? give you your presents? Whoa, all the Gentiles bring gifts. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. It's an Look Easter basket. An oh, Easter basket with alcohol. <laughs> Mine's pink. Liel's is green. Mark's is yellow. They have eggs. This is the Personalized best. alcohol. Easter I, Skittles. I, was, I, knew that, I knew to give Mark gin. Yes. Oh, Tankeray. But and I wasn't I got, sure I got about you. I like you that. seemed like a rum kind of person. That's, I like this a that's lot. That's exactly it. Oh, my God. This is and, the, and the Easter nicest. Kit Kats. I have to say. No, I had this like crisis on the train coming over because I was like, oh, shoot. Kit Kats are not kosher. But it's only till like sundown it's today, right? It's only until the end of the day. <laughs> I also, thank you so much for this. This is the nicest this gift is, I've ever received. Thank you so much. I've always sort of like wanted in on the Easter themed candy and I've never yeah. been able like now I have some see now we feel a part of America yeah I think I Easter has been well, ironically since it's your most religious holiday it is so thoroughly secularized for us because the mm. eggs and the pastels and the, eggs, and and the bunny and the, and the bunny have jelly beans in them <laughs> once you throw a bunny in there Starburst jelly beans I'm in I have to say I'm all in I want to be a Jesuit all in a Jesuit a Jesuit <laughs> where do I sign up okay <laughs> Ashley thank you yes. so much and if yeah. we want if people want to listen to the podcast how do they how yes. do they get there you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts Jesuitical and we're on Twitter at Jesuitical Show um, and you can find all of our episodes at americamagazine.org and you can also subscribe to America Magazine yes which is I well would suggest the read. <laughs> thank you so much Ashley thank you Ashley. Thank, thank you, you. I was supposed to have been a Jesuit three star a naval Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So Mazel Tovs of the Week. Stephanie, do you have one? So I have like a pre-Mazel Tov to my mom and my sister and my cousin Elizabeth who are throwing me a bridal shower this weekend. <gasps> and they're, I like think they're doing a lot of work and I'm like I'm uncomfortable by it. But I love I feel very touched that they're doing it. So that was yeah. a Mazel Tov to the people celebrating you. That <laughs> no, was... to people doing ni- a nice thing okay. for me. Okay. What? That's a thank you. It's a thank you. Okay. It's a recognition <laughs> of what they're doing. You know what? You're just jealous you're not invited. <laughs> just jealous no one throws men showers. Liel? I have a Mazel Tov. <laughs> that look on your face. It, like, this Mazel Tov is going to insult somebody. It is a season of reflection um, and, and resurrection. Uh, and so my Mazel Tov is to a, a man I've spent much time denigrating on air. This is to you, Donald J. Trump, uh, for being more of a commander-in-chief uh, in 48 hours in Syria and Afghanistan uh, than your predecessor has been in eight years. Keep up the good work, my man. Did not see that coming. <laughs> Gotta tell you. My, I have a credit where it's due, guys. I have a triple mazel tov. The first is to um, my niece and nephew, Jolie and Asa Grogan, who read beautifully at the Seder last Friday. Also to their little brother, Gideon, but he's not reading yet. So, But he, he behaved beautifully. Second is to Heidi Rabinowitz, uh, who did a very smart interview with us in West Palm Beach. And the podcast version of that, Book of Life, is up on iTunes. You want to check out our podcast, Book of Life, you can find the version, uh, the episode featuring us. Um, and to Linda Magid, who wrote to us, this is just a mazel tov for like a great letter. She wrote, I'm listening to your podcast while I assemble my daughter's bat mitzvah invitations. That was a super Jewish thing for you to write to us and it makes <laughs> us very happy. And then um, actually, uh, could we have an extra mazel tov? Since Rebecca is in the house today. Rebecca? Live you, from live, New York. Do you have it's a, Rebecca oh, Oppenheimer. You have to get right in front of the microphone. Do you have a mazel tov for us? Yeah, I don't want to yeah. um, just to my sister, Clara, because she tried to keep Passover and did it really well for the first two days. She was really excited that she tried to keep Passover. How old is she? Oh, Claire. She's six. God bless you. <laughs> awesome Mazel Tov. Um, I also want to throw in a, a Mazel Tov to Ashley, who brought us oh, my uh, my first Easter basket, and I feel like a good American now. And here's the thing. The, the most adorable thing. Have you seen the little bunny? Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's like the there's best details abound. God, I'm keeping this in my Thank desk. So I'm never throwing too. this away. The Gentiles yeah. bring the best gifts. Slash the only gifts. The only gifts. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Lynn Goldsmith of Temple Emmanuel in Dothan, Alabama. Kosher slaughtering is by those who attended the White House Seder. Find Tablet Magazine on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. We record in Argo Studios, which is ready to go to war with North Korea. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. 